1: Hello, this is Sue Jackson on 101.9 Hi FM on the Finding Human program. And my guest today is Philip Veyers. Philip is retired now, but he ran his own very successful business and in South Africa. He is now an ex-South African. He uh, has moved to Brisbane. He's an entrepreneur. And when he was in South Africa, one of his Passions was the South African Air Force. His son and his son-in-law are both very highly respected pilots. Now, Philip, um, unfortunately, like so many other South Africans, after a very violent home intrusion, Philip, his wife, and his children left South Africa and relocated to Australia. Um, But his love for what he calls the motherland is deep and it runs in his veins. And he has been invited to give many inspiring talks in South Africa and elsewhere. Philip and I met on our way to Israel and we we realized we we were both cousins. We had the same aunt and uncle, Yanni and Daphne Smuts, and the same cousins. So Philip is my cousin by marriage. Welcome, Cuz. How are good you Good morning, today? Kaz.
2: How very good to see you. It would have been better in person, uh, of course, and uh, just a special word to all your listeners who might be having to endure me for not the first occasion, and uh, thank you to them all. Uh, they flatter me.
1: <laughs> They're looking forward to listening to you, Kaz. Um, Philip is a great friend of Israel. And of uh, of Jews, his father was a judge with many Jewish friends. Just tell me a bit about your dad. Cause
2: my my father went to Pretoria Boys High, as did I, uh, many years later, and then followed the family footsteps, and did a B.A.L.L.B. at uh, in with Takies in Pretoria, and then went to to Cambridge Christ College in Cambridge, where he did an LLB which was later upgraded to an LLM and um, came back and practiced as an advocate at the Pretoria Bar Um, and then mid-1980s was appointed to the bench of what was then the Transvaal Provincial Division of the Supreme Court of South Africa which is now obviously the High Court and um, he too, um, like his father and like his grandfather um, and like me, um, had a great love for Israel. They all visited Israel. The Obah only once fun enough in 1917. Um, but I think that was formative for me, certainly. Um, my dad had a, a number of colleagues on both the bar and the bench, and I actually made a list after we'd spoken previously. Um, if, if I recall correctly, the Honorable Mr. Justice Oscar Galgett that had admitted my father to the bar. Yes. Which would have been probably in the late fifties and subsequent to that um, his son Judge Brian Galgett who was uh, a judge on the uh, Transvaal Provincial Division as well and he used to on occasion take me back to Boys High from from the city (laughs) centre. Ezra Goldstein the father of the Chief Rabbi. Right. I met, uh, I remember him well and I actually went to the home one evening where I met who the the, the chief rabbi was to become this Warren the chief rabbi and his elder brother, I think elder brother Saul. Yeah, and
1: Warren is the chief rabbi.
2: Warren absolutely. Um, in another colleague which is an interesting little twist to it was um, Judge uh, Maya Joffe oh, yeah. whose cousin I, we met at uh, Ramat Yohanan um, uh, Kibbutz, mm. where he's known as Maya Yoffe, and he's a cousin of Judge Maya Joffe. Mm. And then I think my dad's favorite, or the cl- one to whom he was closest, and they were very good social friends, was Judge Henry Price. And I knew him, and he was an advocate, and he used to flatter me as a child, but ask me what car I thought he should buy. <laughs> and what I said, Well, do. why don't you be, be like my dad and buy a Mercedes? And my dad. Actually, that was something that I remember today still. My dad then explained to me why it was very difficult for some Jewish people to buy German products and German cars. Huh. And, and that's that, I mean, that goes back, oh, that goes back probably not much less than 60 years. Wow. Mm-hmm. And I remember that. And Judge Henry Price was um, in, our, in my parental home one evening where he asked if, if he could use the phone before the days of cell phones. And I said, Of course, Judge, come along and I'll show you. So I took him through. To my dad's study where there was a phone, and he said to me, "Philip, how long have we known each other?" So I said, "Well, Judge, forty-five years or whatever the case was <laughs> at that time." And he said, "Well, don't you think you should maybe call me Henry?" And I said, "No, I don't think so, Judge."
1: <laughs> <laughs> it just didn't feel right. No, not mm-hmm. not at all. You know that so, that uh, actually reminds me of a of a story that you told when we were going through Smat's house uh, in Arini about the domestic worker who worked for General Smuts and and Omar Smuts and all the children called her auntie, Tani. Is that right?
2: Her name was Annie Morpho King. Mm -hmm. And other than the Obas and Omar, everybody addressed her as Mrs Morpho King.
1: Oh, Mrs Morpho King. Uh.
2: Yeah, she was addressed as Mrs Morpho King by the children, by the grandchildren, and only the Obas and Omar um, addressed her as Annie. It was also her that on the night, or the night following the Obas' death in 1950, there was Annie who sat down uh, next to Omar, who was crying on her bed, put her arm around her and said, you've got to deal with this, because it was right that the Obast went first, because he would not have had the strength to deal with your having gone first. Oh, gosh. Um, mm. And that, you know, just, just an interesting quirk there, Sue, just an interesting thought that I've... I've uh, I've thought of for many years is that Annie had the Obas had been an out and out racist there's another article I read recently um, that would not have occurred no it they, they would have. not have insisted and it wasn't Annie's insistence it was uh, the Obas and Omar's insistence that she be addressed as Mrs moffat King mm. that is not what a racist does and she would um, also
1: never have been able to sit down next to Omar Smuts and yeah. put her arm round her Far yeah. from it.
2: Mm. Um, and that, was Obas a paternalist? Oh, absolutely. Um, he believed, I think, fairly strongly that um, there was a learning process to go through, a learning curve to be able to govern. Um, and on that basis, I think he's obviously uh, viewed as a racist. Um, I don't think so. I don't think he was ever racist. I think he was a paternalist. He's caring for humanity as a whole would have uh, not permitted that. But I think Africa as a continent will prove right what he envisaged or what he considered in those days. Not, mm. not least of all, South Africa still today, to be honest. Ab-
1: absolutely. South Africa today is definitely a part of that. Okay, I'm just going to get
0: back to you shortly. This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson, only on 101.9 High FM
1: hello this is sue jackson on the finding human program on 101.9 my guest today is philip veyers and if you'd like to contact us please do so on three four five one nine or you can telegram us on oh six one eight nine five one zero one nine philip and i would like to dedicate this program to all the hostages held for more than a hundred and three days and to their relatives and friends and all who have lost loved ones in the 6th of October massacre, Hamas massacre. To all the injured, to the IDF soldiers putting their lives at risk to save Israel from the the likes of the Hamas monsters, we are thinking of you and praying for your safe return home. You know, uh, Philip, you and I were going to talk about the ideological aspirations of the United Nations. Now, We chose the United Nations because uh, General Smuts, your grandfather, was involved with the the founding of it. Would you like to tell us a bit about that?
2: Sue, it in fact goes back a few years. Um, In 1918, uh, the OBAS wrote a book, The League of Nations, A Practical Suggestion. Um, That was preceded by his proposal to both Houses of Parliament in the UK, for the establishment of what we now know as the, as the Commonwealth of Nations. Um, he had this whole, I think, I think it formed part of his holism, his holistic approach to life and his, um, his holism thoughts, <coughs> excuse me. And, as we know, the League of Nations came into being and it was through the League of Nations that the Obas was able to, largely his doing, um, make good on the Balfour Declaration that England had issued in 1917, in which uh, hadn't yet been implemented. And after the, the First World War, um, and the Ottoman Empire had been defeated, uh, at the San Remo conference, he proposed what came to be known as the Smith Proposal, which was the the mandate system as we know it. And South Africa, as we will remember, got a C-class mandate over then South West Africa, and England was given a class and A mandate over what was then known as Palestine, and it was on that basis that England was able to make good on her undertakings of the Balfour Declaration. And of course, it wasn't it wasn't that simple. Leading up to one thousand, nine hundred and forty-eight, um, every time a boatload of Jewish refugees or immigrants to uh, to their, their ancestral homeland took place. The Grand Mufti of Jerusalem um, got his bloomers into a real bunch and protested violently. There were protests all over. Jews were murdered uh, during those those immigration times,
1: and ships and, were sent back to Germany.
2: Oh, absolutely! Yeah. Um, and you know, it, was, it, it all got became quite ridiculous at the end. Um, the, the Jewish immigrants were permitted to have Firearms, but not uh, not bullets. Uh. And when I was in Israel, when, when we um, were there for the Balfour Declaration Centenary, um, the very dear friend Joel Klotnik took me to the Iron Institute, um, which was an underground bullet manufacturing facility. Yeah. And that was how they circumvented that. And there were was, was stairs going down and the lift coming up, all hidden behind a baker's oven. There's a bakery and a laundry. And the unwitting British soldiers used to take and buy bread and have their laundry carried out, unknown to them that right below their feet, bullets were being manufactured.
1: And we're being, and I suppose, so, the noise was hidden by the washing machines.
2: Absolutely, absolutely, <laughs> and the ovens. And I'm happy to say, which, is, which I take as um, a, a mark of small achievement, that when I was there, I posted a photo of the, the Bullet Factory, the Underground Bullet Factory at the Ireland Institute, um, on Google. Yeah. And it is now it's now has three and a half million views.
1: Oh my gosh, is that so? Uh, that's are, amazing. <laughs>
2: You're uh, famous, uh, Phil. Absolutely I've when got I told a Joel. When I told,
1: <laughs> yeah, when I
2: told Joel that I'd had what is at that stage a million views, he said, that's not good enough. No, come on. Push it.
0: Push it. <laughs>
2: so it's, and then the Second World War, of course, happened, which was, uh, well, let me just get back to the League of Nations. The League of Nations failed because um, Woodrow Wilson was defeated and America pulled out and it came to naught. But the the provisions of the Class A mandate over Palestine stood because they had been ratified into international law. Um, and so the the League of Nations came to naught at the end of it. Which I think was a great disappointment to the boss And then after the Second World War, um, he was quick, along with other leaders at the time, to propose the formation of another body. He was determined that there would, be not, there would not again be the enormous deaths and casualties that were suffered in both the First and the Second World Wars. And San Francisco, 1945. Um, He was largely responsible for the drafting of the preamble to the Charter, um, where in fact he coined the phrase, human rights, the declaration of human rights.
0: Um,
2: And interestingly, um, which I only learned relatively recently from um, the late Colonel Charles Comley, the veto that the permanent members of the Security Council enjoy was a proposal of the no veto no russia no russia no united nations and of course the permanent members particularly russia china and thank heavens america um have used the veto on a number of occasions america very recently thank heavens for that
1: phil just hang on we're going to get back to you okay um we're going to get back to Phil in a minute. It's just that he suddenly froze. And apparently this has been um, happening most of the day. And has been happening everywhere, even at my house, I estimate. admit. Um, you know that when the United Nations came into being, it was, there was excitement about it. That um, there would be more, more uh, openness, less wars. But it hasn't worked out that
0: way. This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson, only on 101.9 High FM.
1: Hello, this is Sue Jackson on the Finding Human program. My guest today is Philip Bears. We're having a bit of a problem with connection. Um, I think it's everywhere, actually, in Johannesburg at the moment. Hello, Phil. Can you hear me?
2: Hi, Sue. Yep, got your fives. Have you got me? I can't any? hear
1: him talking. <laughs> okay, Phil, now... Say it again, please. How are you?
2: I'm good, thanks. <laughs> have you, can you hear me now? Yes,
1: I can. Sorry about that. Okay. Um, no Philip, problem. you know, one of the other things we wanted to talk about, and I see that we're going to have to go into it because of, of wasting time with uh, this hitch, was how so often um, enemies become friends which we don't often think, especially in a time of war, which is what's happening at the moment with, uh, with Israel and, and Hamas and Ukraine and Russia. There was a time when um, Germany, the Nazis, killed six million Jews and millions of other people, and yet they're the ones standing up with us now for genocide. Now, you know, I was thinking about your grandfather, General Smuts and he's, he had some very strange friends. Uh, tell me about the, um, his relationship with Churchill. I mean, he put him into jail and then he, so in the Boer War. Just tell us a bit about Churchill.
2: So, as you know, um, Winston Spencer Churchill was um, a correspondent during the Boer War and was on a train that was, uh, the rails were blown up and he was taken, taken captive. And um, imprisoned in Pretoria, where he protested vehemently, saying that he was a war correspondent. And the abbas is responsible. Responsible? Why are you there wearing um, a sidearm? Why are you armed if you're a correspondent? Mm-hmm. And he was he was jailed, and went to Gratling's to escape, <laughs> where he got out of his. Um, it wasn't a cell by any stretch. So he got out of his where he was being held and uh, swam the mighty arpige river um and in fact i told his granddaughter the countess charlotte Peel, i said you know i hate to disappoint you but the arpige river um at most times is about 10 feet wide and about six inches deep so there wasn't a heck of a lot of swimming involved but
0: <laughs>
2: they, they became um acquainted with each other after the boer war uh, when Churchill started gaining prominence in England and the Obos was in a mission to um, get as much self-governance as he could for South Africa and they developed um, with the passage of time of friendship Churchill was very supportive of the Obos and um, the there's, uh, there's number of stories the best uh, collection of stories in fact would probably be the book by um, um, by Richard Stein, mm. they became very, very dear friends. And, and then the, Churchill consulted with the Obas um, extensively and continuously. Um, whenever there was something big on the go uh, during the Second World War, Churchill would cable the Obas um, and ask him for his thoughts and comments. And whenever it was possible, they would meet, if not uh, in England, then, um, for example, 1942 in Cairo. And, and our Uncle Yanni of, was
1: with them, our Uncle Yanni absolutely. was with him. Mm. Absolutely, he was Uncle Yani was his ADC. Yeah,
2: Yeah, absolutely. And Churchill went to the extent of um, saying that his um, Lodestar aircraft was not suitable for intercontinental travel and gave him an Avro York, which is a far larger four-engine aircraft yeah. for Rolls-Royce Merlin motors. and Interestingly, that during the Second World War, they were sitting um, one evening, and they had a good laugh because Churchill mentioned the, his escape during the Boer War, and uh, the Arabasque chuckled away and said, "Well, you actually needn't have bothered because I was going to release you anyway the following day,
1: uh. so the escape
2: <laughs> was for And then he also,
1: didn't Churchill also appoint him as Prime Minister if something went wrong with with Churchill? What was that story? Well,
2: there are a lot of stories about that. Um, In fact, it wasn't constitutionally possible um, for Churchill to do that, uh, being a democracy um, England. And basically what happened was when Churchill went to Yalta with um, FDR, with Roosevelt and to meet Stalin. One of the other great villains of all time, um, the Obas sort of chaired the the the, the war uh, the war cabinet. Um, so from from a from a practical point of view, he was in charge. From a theoretical point, not. Um, the reality was that, that he he had um, probably more input and more objective input into what was being waged at the time in 1942 than the. Uh, the Chiefs of of the Arms of Service. So, um, and he was older than them obviously as well. Mm. So, um, he sort of ran the meetings in Churchill's absence, but there was nothing official
1: about it. Amazing. We're going to get back to the Churchill and Smuts in a moment.
0: This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson, only on 101.9 High FM.
1: Hello, this is Sue Jackson on the Finding Human program. My guest today is Philip Bayers. And we're talking about Churchill and Smuts's relationships and how you can go from an enemy to a, a, a trusted friend. You know, Churchill's doctor, later Lord Moran, wrote in his diary, «Smuts is the only man who has any influence with the Prime Minister. Indeed, he's the only ally I have impressing counsels of common sense on the Prime Minister». The Smuts sees clearly that Winston is irreplaceable, that he may make an effort to persuade him to be more sensible. And then uh, the, it went on to say many insiders w- uh, witnessed Smuts's influence in amazing ways. Um, Churchill used to have his uh, meetings at all different hours of the day and night. And he was ch- beaten at this, this uh, game once when this is what was happening to him. A typical evening would be drinks at 8.30, dinner at 9, brandy and cigars at 10.15, joining the ladies at 10.40, film at 11, and then work from 1 until 3 a.m., Mountbatten record. Churchill was beaten at this game once, the only time I ever saw him defeated. At about 1 o'clock, Winston said, Well, now we will start work. No we won't, said Smuts. I am not going to be a party to your murdering the British Chiefs of Staff. Here they are. They have to be back in the office by nine o'clock in the morning, ready for meetings at nine thirty. You will still be lying in bed with a fat cigar dictating to to your secretary they have to work all morning and all afternoon in the afternoon you have a siesta you bring them down here make them work all nights as well you'll kill them and I'm not going to be a party to that he then got up and he went to bed there was absolute silence for a minute nobody spoke and suddenly winston churchill got up and said well perhaps we'd better go to bed it was the only time we were ever let off (laughs) i love that story isn't it gorgeous (laughs) 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 that was the influence Uh, he had
2: there was, a, there was a movie, Sue, called Churchill, which I watched and it upset me tremendously because the Obas is portrayed as, uh, as a lackey. You know, um, when Churchill didn't want to, in the movie, when Churchill didn't want to get out of bed one morning, Clementine told um, the ADC to get hold of Smuts and get him to come and get Winston out of bed. <laughs> and I, I I was so upset by that, so I actually got hold of Richard Stane. I said, Richard what, I mean, is this true? I mean, he's just a lackey in this. And Richard Stone said, forget you ever saw the movie. He says it is absolute uh, rubbish.
1: Oh, is that so? So that, that made me feel better, yeah. I'm sure. And, you know, so, he uh, also, Churchill also wrote him, uh, said that Churchill sh- shut himself away in his bedroom for half a day to compose a letter to Mrs. Izzy Smuts, whom he had never met. Uh, To an unversed reader, it may seem a little bit overdone. Knowing Churchill as we do, we can be in no doubt that it was a genuine, heartfelt expression. This is what he said. Please accept my deepest sympathy in your sorrow and deprivation. I know how vain are words in such sadness and how much worse worse it is for those who stay than for those who go. And then he went on to say that... um, how, he, the, how the world had lost a great warrior statesman and a philosopher. So that was what Churchill thought of his very, very good friend. Now, Phil, you mentioned um, a Paul von Letter Vorbeck. I've never heard of him because you said he was also one of the ones who could have been an enemy and then became a, a, a trusted person. How, what, who was he?
2: Sir, so that, is, that is an interesting story. Um, in 1915, the OBAS and Louis Buerte went to um, drive the Germans out of Deutsches Südwest, Africa, which they accomplished fairly quickly. Um, a vast country, but they went to, they were, the, the uh, defensive capability of the Germans um, wasn't great, so they, um, they quickly dispensed with them. It's also the first time that South Africa ever used an aircraft. In, uh, in wartime, which was for reconnaissance purposes. And the Abbas was then sent to German East Africa.
1: So this was World War I, was it?
2: World War I, mm-hmm. 1916. Mm-hmm. And he went off to uh, German East Africa, where his adversary was General Paul Fonetta Forbach. And he chased uh, Fonetta Forback all around the country. He managed to drive him out of what, is, what was then Tanganyika, Um, And, but never defeated him, never captured him. And in fact, the only thing he caught and uh, an enormous number of his his soldiers was malaria, which troubled him to the end of his life. But they became friends. They corresponded, uh, corresponded and during the Second World War, uh, Fonetta Forbach, who was a Kaisers man, he was never a Nazi. and was, was heard that Fonetta Forbach was literally starving and freezing to death in his apartment in Berlin. So the OBAS arranged to the International Red Cross that aid packages would be delivered to, to Fonetta forbach mm. and which they, which they were and uh, uh, Fonetta Vorbeck in fact um, having survived the war um, the Second World War visited the big house in Irene. Oh, did he? Um, mm, as as did another of the Obas' with great friends, Chaim uh, Weizmann. He also visited oh, wow. the house in Irene, and and that one is um, is it leads me on to on to Weizmann, who the Obas first met in 1917, and they um, I think were matched intellectually, or it's been said they were. Chaim mm. uh, Weizmann being a a brilliant physicist who. Um, invented and developed um, an explosive that was um, critical to the British and Allied war effort. And they became friends. And Weitzman had in the Obas uh, conduit directly into the Imperial War Cabinet at that stage. So he could sound off ideas on the Obas. And the Obas, if they were of merit, which I'm sure they were, would have raised the matters with, uh, with the, the War Cabinet. And that could likely have had quite a bearing on the issuing of the Balfour Declaration then. Um, Peter Bailey, our mutual very dear friend in, in Israel, wrote an article um, Smuts the Forgotten Man behind the Balfour Declaration. Mm-hmm. So he doesn't feature in it at all um, in terms of the published publications about the Balfour Bel- Declaration but he certainly had vast influence over its drafting and in fact um, um, the issuing of the um, of the Declaration.
1: And you were actually welcomed at the Knesset when they heard who you were.
2: Yeah, I, I was, by the Deputy Speaker, Hillig Barr in, in, uh-huh. in those days. And um, we all sat in the Knesset, um, um, in, the, in the gallery, yeah. where he welcomed me. And, um, I didn't understand a word, because you you, you had those speakers to um, translate, yeah. and then, they were no longer particularly comfortable on my ears. And so I took them off. And then I heard my name in Hebrew. Yeah. Uh, the only one amongst us who spoke uh, who spoke Hebrew was, was Beryl Klotnick. I said, Beryl, what's he saying?
1: And she translated for me. So that is a lifetime experience. I mean, it really was. Absolutely. You know, a- and, Philip, now, when, when I look around the world and I see so-called genocide... In many, many places that it's been there, Darfur, um, uh, the Rohingya Muslim, Muslims um, in Myanmar. Uh You know, I wonder why we are the ones getting the flak. I'm going to get back to
0: that in a moment. This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson, only on 101.9 High FM.
1: Hello, this is Sue Jackson on the Finding Human program, and my guest today is Philip Bayes. And Philip and I are related through marriage, and so it's ju- and he has immigrated to Australia. It's just so nice connecting with him. Um, Philip, just tell me when you look around the world, the Darfur atrocities, the different ethnic cleansing uh, that's going on. Why do you think? It's always Israel. I read something the other day, no Jews, no news.
2: I think it is. I think you've answered that, really. Um, I think it is very simply because Israel is Jewish. It's Mm -hmm. as simple as that. Um, Thomas Sowell did an, an interview many years ago, which I happened to pick up on YouTube recently, and the interviewer asked him, what must the Jews of the world do to be more accepted and more liked? And Thomas Sowell had a very simple answer. He said, they must fail. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that is actually true. You know, um, that sort of leads me, leads okay. me on to the, the, the current situation where I have always been aware that there's sort of like a subliminal um, degree of anti-Semitism in South Africa. And the current events following 7 October um, have actually drawn a lot of anti-Semites out. Um, here's one lady who, um, I won't mention her name, but she was a very prominent um, advocate working for an organ of state and retired and was followed by an absolute disaster in the same position. And she described, she went absolutely berserk on what must be the most venomous place to be in on, in all, on all the earth which is X, what used to be called Twitter, Mm. and decrying Israel's actions in Gaza. And eventually, when she was pushed, and she had to be pushed, she said that the October 7th massacres were, quote-unquote, horrible. Mm. And I I sent her a message back, and I said, is that really the best that you can do? Mm. And she was a person that I had enormous respect for. And... You know, I, I just don't understand it. As I say, I've known there's, there's been an, an an undercurrent of anti-Semitism in South Africa for years, not least of all in the National Party. Um, but it suited them to be friends with Israel for things like the 707 project, the G5, the G6 cannon the field guns, um, and the lobby project, and so on. Um, and but the the, the current bunch um, are just absolutely venomous. Um, and I take this all terribly personally. I really do. I never, I knew I'd, uh, I'd be affected by it, but not to the degree that I have been. Mm. I get so angry and so hurt um, by what people say about um, about Israel, who was and Israel was extraordinarily kind to me, um, about Jews, and I have a cousin who's Jewish, as you know. You probably know <laughs> her name. <Sebastian>. Um, <laughs> And my, and my friends in Israel, you know, um, it pains me enormously. I've never known anything other than kindness, generosity, and consideration from Jewish people at large. Um, specifically, my friends and relatives, and it, it just pains me that there's a, there's a PhD who in human sciences or something is also um, far too active on on X, mm. and also totally opposed to Israel. And, and I've thought of. Of saying to her, "You actually, you, you've come out of the closet now as an anti-Semite," and and the reality is, so just really quickly, that I know more about the history of Israel and the history of the Palestinians probably than most people. Mm. I've worked very hard at, at finding out about it. I've done a lot of research. I have good friends and family who have taught me about it, and I just don't understand why these people don't go and read the book themselves. It's easy. Go to Google and um, You'll find the history there. Absolutely. It'll tell you that Israel was not responsible, nor were the Jews, for for Gaza. You know? We it, handed it to Gaza
1: there. over. That's right, two thousand and five. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there is selective think- outrage, quite honestly. Um for I that I'm seeing but you know Hillel Fooled on LinkedIn said at least our enemies are coming out uh, our, the ones we thought were our friends are suddenly showing their true faces and, uh, and we can see who they are we are not be fooled again you know I must admit that I see the faces of the Palestinian children confused terrified bloodstained dirty you know and and then I, I, I see the, the children who have been kidnapped, the children who have been had to witness atrocities in the South by the massacre, the Hamas massacre. And my heart absolutely breaks. There are times that I actually can't even contain that pain that I'm feeling for the world at the moment. And you ask, where are the voices of reason? You know, they've just brought out this video of uh, Hamas saying that they, that two more hostages are killed. It's pure psychological torture that they're doing, and no one speaks out about it. Least of all our government.
2: Absolutely, you know, and, and, and the, the, the irony to me too, if you understand the 1948 definition of genocide, which is a word created. To describe the holocaust there was no word that described the horror um of the holocaust sufficiently and the, the the i'm trying to think who it was um coined the phrase genocide genocide is a systematic destruction and elimination of a race or a people that is not what israel is doing it is not what they are doing and if you understood that but then you know if you if you're going to be an anti-semite even if you're an, in south african intellectual anti-semite um the the rules of war as they stand to which Israel complies and genocide with which, with which Israel is not engaged will mean nothing. Mm-hmm. They are still going to nail Israel. And it is simply because Israel is Jewish. Mm-hmm. I think that's, uh, that's, that's the bottom line. Because even at school, you know, at Boy's High, um, there were the Captain Brothers that my father was at school with, AKJ, Arthur Captain Jewelers. Mm-hmm.
1: Um,
2: <laughs> It was Meyer and company that my mother used to go and shop at. Jewish. Um,
1: pick and pay. Exactly, Jewish. Phil. Phil, I'm being told to actually wrap up. It's a pity because we've got so much more to talk about. I will be in contact with you afterwards and we can make another time if that's okay with you. Unfortunately, because uh, of the cutoff, we lost, I think, about 15 minutes of our time together. But I think we have covered quite a lot. We've got a song coming up which will not come through on podcast. Uh, podcast, It's, um, uh, uh, it's, a, it's a, a beautiful song you're going to be listening to now. Thank you, Judy Erwick from Australia, for sending it.